Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone in the house to please silence your cell phones. And for those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. It's my pleasure to now introduce the host of today's program. Paul Larkin is the Senior Legal Research Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. Pat, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to join us for this event. You have a great many different ways of spending it, and we appreciate your willingness to spend time to listen to our speaker. Peter J. Wallison will be our speaker today. He is the author of the book Judicial Fortitude, which I have read, which is terrific, and which addresses a very hotly debated issue today, the legitimacy of the administrative state. It's an issue that conservatives have discussed for quite some time, but we are starting to reach the critical mass necessary, perhaps, to see legislation change or judicial attitudes change to reflect the problems we have under the growing administrative state. To do that, I am honored to introduce Peter Wallison, author of Judicial Fortitude, The Last Chance to Reign in the Administrative State. He is the Arthur F. Burns Fellow in Financial Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in financial markets deregulation. Before joining AEI in 1999, he practiced law in the private sector twice, once with the New York City firm of Rogers and Wells, and then also with the Washington, D.C. office of the firm of Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. He has also held numerous positions in government. He was counselor to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, general counsel to the Department of Treasury, and White House counsel. He has written numerous articles and op-eds, and has authored several books, including Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again, as well as Ronald Reagan, The Power of Conviction and the Success of His Presidency. Peter holds degrees from Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Please join me in welcoming Peter J. Wallace. Paul, I really appreciate the introduction, and also I appreciate all of you, as Paul said, coming out. You could 
might have better things to do with your lunchtime, but uh, coming out to uh, listen to this talk. Um, I do think this is a subject that is uh, topical. Um, conservatives have been talking about this for a while, um, and I've been a little bit surprised how few books have actually been written on this subject. And uh, I started to think about it um, about a year, year and a half ago, because I was seeing a lot of concern about things that were coming out of the administration, administrative agencies, and I didn't see a lot of um, uh, commentary in detailed form about these things or the history of how we got to where we are today. So what I'm going to try to talk about today is what is in the book and what I think is important about the controversy concerning the role of the administrative agencies, as I call them, the administrative state. Now, the book starts with a sentence that is a bit, bit strong, but I think it summarizes uh, what the concern is, and that is it is not too much to say that we risk losing our democracy unless we can gain control of the agencies of the administrative state. Now, as I will say um, during, this, during this discussion, as we get deeper into detail, this issue is inescapable. Um, we cannot have an administrative state that is making the laws, disguised as rules, but the laws for the people of the United States, unless the people have actually voted for these things. In a democracy, in a, a democratic republic, such as the one we live in today, the idea is that the laws are made by the representatives of the people. And to the extent that the administrative state is able to go beyond that, um, to, to put out laws, put out rules, <coughs> that are not actually based on the authority that Congress gave them is not only a violation of the Constitution's structure, and I will talk about that in a moment, but it is also a, an illegal act in the sense that they are using powers to make rules that they do not have. Um, the framers, as we know, created this democratic republic with the separation of powers. All of you are quite familiar with this, but not everyone is. I've been talking to a number of radio audiences and so forth. Not everyone is, but the reason the separation of powers exists is that the framers were very much concerned about the fact that in their world, kings had the power to both make the law and enforce the law. And this, this was to them, uh, the, the great danger to the liberties of the American people. If an executive had the power to make the law and enforce it, that's where the liberties are threatened. And so they were very clear that the laws of the United States had to be made under Article I of the Constitution by the Congress. Then the executive um, was able to given permission to enforce the law, to execute it, to, to um, uh, put things into effect. 
but the laws initially were to be drafted by the Congress. These were the important decisions. Now, in the book, I do talk a lot about um, what a law is um, or what is what legislation is uh, as distinguished from administration. Um, there isn't an answer to this yet. And one of the reasons there isn't an answer to this is that the courts have over 200 years simply refused to go into this issue. The book is named Judicial Fortitude because it is a difficult thing for the agency, for the, for the courts to do for reasons I will explain and will probably come up in any questions that you ask. Um, but the courts were, I believe, and I haven't seen this in any other um, paper or book, the courts, I believe, were given authority by the framers to preserve the separation of powers. In Federalist 78, uh, Alexander Hamilton says that the courts are the guardians of the Constitution. He was explaining to the people who were supposed to ratify the Constitution why the courts, the, the judges, were given lifetime appointments. And you can understand why people would be interested in this, because this is a democracy that was coming along, or at least a republic that was coming along. And, and if they voted to ratify it, they would wonder, well, why is it that this group of people have lifetime appointments when everyone else is elected? The president is elected, Congress is elected. Why do these people have lifetime appointments? And what Hamilton was saying is they need the protection that comes from lifetime appointments in order to have the fortitude, and that's where the word comes from, the fortitude to stand up to the elected branches, that is the president and, and Congress. Um, so if courts have that authority, and if, they, and if the framers had that expectation, then they should be using it. And my concern, and what I'm trying to express in the book, is that the courts have not done this. They have, I think, irresponsibly ducked this issue too many times. Um, they, in fact, they have made things worse. In 1984, as many of you know, the courts adopted, um, the Supreme Court adopted a decision in a case called Chevron versus NRDC. Um, in that case, the, the Supreme Court fundamentally said to all the lower courts, and they do observe carefully what the Supreme Court says, um, you, should, you should defer your decision about um, what Congress authorized the agency to do to the agency's interpretation of its statute. Um, and that, of course, was a license for a great deal of latitude for the agencies. Now, they could not only look at the statutes that were given, that they were being given currently, they could look back at statutes that had been passed years before and reinterpret those statutes 
in a way to do the things that the agencies thought were right according to their priorities, but not necessarily what the Congress intended when it gave those authorities to the agencies. So the first problem that we will confront here in performing this area is the problem of dealing with the Chevron case. And I think we have a court today with five constitutionalists on it, several of them, all of them actually, in one way or another over time, um, have expressed uh, reservations about the Chevron case. So I think they will be willing to take on this issue and, and address Chevron. Um, the reason that this is all important is that if the courts do not stop this constant process of more and more authority going to the administrative agencies, we will have in the United States what I think is fundamentally um, a question of legitimacy of the government. Now, this has happened elsewhere. If we look at, at Brexit in England, ex exactly the same kind of problem, and that is the British people at that time, when they voted in 2016 to um, leave the European Union, they did it in, in part, not entirely, but certainly in part, um, because they found that many regulations coming out of Brussels were regulations over which they had no apparent control. Um, Britain was a democracy, is a democracy. They would naturally believe that they were entitled to control what the government is doing. But these decisions coming out of uh, the EU were apparently uncontrolled, at least from their view. And that became one of the irritants that resulted in Brexit. Now, of course, the American people cannot leave the United States. But the, the problem is that to, if laws are not thought to be legitimate, then people don't obey them. We obey the laws in the United States because we believe they have, we, they have a certain amount of moral authority. The moral authority comes from the fact that we were involved in creating those laws through the proper venue, which is, which is Congress. But if the American people come to believe that Congress actually isn't making these rules, but they're being made by a bunch of, maybe I shouldn't call them a bunch, if they're being made by a group of people in and around Washington, D.C., who have their own priorities, which are not necessarily the priorities of the American people, then we will have a serious problem of legitimacy in this country. So that's why I say this problem is inescapable. We can't just say it can go on indefinitely. This is fine. The agencies are not doing any terrible harm. Um, they are simply uh, um, making these rules. And if we change things a little bit, if we get Congress to, to change the laws, then um, we'll solve the problem. Um, that's not 
as easily done as you might think. And uh, I think we, especially the problem with Congress, is not easy to deal with. Because I think Congress has found that they can get just as much mileage out of adopting what I would call a goals um, uh, legislation, one in which they set a goal for an administrative agency and give the agency the authority to achieve the goal, they can get as much political mileage out of that, electoral mileage, as they can by actually dealing with the tough questions in the law. So, for example, if you take the um, EPA and the Clean Water Act, and basically there are, there are some things in the statute where there are specific things that the EPA has to do, but in general, the idea is that the EPA um, has to uh, do whatever is necessary to make sure the waters of the United States are clear. And all of a sudden, people are complaining about regulations coming out of Washington that uh, affect a farm pond or affect a stream that has always run through their property and now is subject to government regulation. When Donald Trump was running for election in 2016, he would often talk about eliminating rules and regulations. Now, the crowds he was talking about it's like, very much like the crowds we see on television or saw over the last few weeks on television, made up of ordinary people. Um, and they would erupt with applause and yelling and cheering when he talked about eliminating rules and regulations. Now, if this was a business audience, I could understand this. But this wasn't, these were not business people in general. They were ordinary people. But they found, had found, I think, in their lives that they were confronted by regulations and rules that didn't make any sense to them and didn't have an origin um, in anything they voted for. And what they know is that when they complain about these things to a congressman, the answer is, oh, well, I didn't vote for that. That was the agency that did that. But that is, of course, a problem because con Congress has an incentive to do this. They avoid the tough decisions that might impair their ability to be reelected. Um, but at the same time, um, they are handing over to the agency some tremendous powers that they will continue to hand over as long as this is permissible. How can it be stopped? The first point, of course, is to deal with the Chevron case. Um, and I, I think that's relatively easy to deal with. I don't think there's actually a lot of um, uh, legal difficulty in doing something about, about Chevron because all that Congress, all that the courts really have to do in that case is to say um, the, we are no longer going to weight our decisions toward the administrative agency. Under the Ad Administrative Procedure Act, um, it is important for the courts um, to review all congressional acts to determine what Congress actually authorized. And actually, in Marbury versus Madison, 
in 1803, that's exactly what Chief Justice Marshall said. The courts should declare what the law is. And that's basic to the Constitution. Now, some people might, I, I just want to make one distinction here, because I'm a conservative. Many of you probably are conservatives, and we have been taught by Scalia and many others that we do not want activist courts. We do not want courts impressing their views on legislation. Uh, courts are there for a totally different reason and not reasons of policy. But I want to make a, a major distinction here, and that is that where we're talking about the words of the Constitution, you know, what is interstate commerce or what is search and seizure, the courts should stay out of making policy. But where we are talking about the structure of the Constitution, the very basis on which the government functions, that is, the separation of powers, the power of Congress, the power of the executive branch. It is not activism for the courts to deal with those issues and deal with them firmly. In fact, it's a necessity. And so after the court deals with this question of Chevron, I believe they should go on and deal with another very important issue that gets much less attention than Chevron, is he isn't not even talked about very much other than among legal scholars, and that is the non-delegation doctrine. Um, there's been a recent case in the Supreme Court, the Gundy case. I won't go into it in detail, but I happen to be there for the argument, and I think it may be the beginning, if the court comes down the way I think they will come down, which is five to three, maybe six to two, um, in favor of declaring that what happened in the Gundy case was, in fact, a delegation of legislative authority, that would be the first step in a process of creating a jurisprudence of non-delegation. That's what we've been missing for 200 years. The courts have constantly set aside, refused to deal exactly with what this business of delegating legislative authority really is, and in other words, they haven't shown the kind of fortitude that our, our friend Alexander Hamilton said they were supposed to exercise and were given lifetime appointments uh, to pursue. So from my perspective, that's where the court should go next. It should begin the process of creating a jurisprudence of non-delegation. You cannot do this in one case. You might, in, in, the Chevron, in a Chevron decision, be able to say, well, from now on, we really want to rely on, first, on where the court, what the court thinks, the, the, the reviewing court in a judicial review uh, in, environment, believes um, the Congress actually authorized. Um, that's, that will send a signal to the courts that that's what they ought to do, and they will do it, in fact, Several um, appeals courts have already begun doing this when they see the way that they've been seeing the shadows on the wall here from the Supreme Court. Um, but in the non-delegation area, it's not going to be that easy um, because you, it's exceedingly hard. And I don't try in the, in the book to 
say, what is the difference between legislation and administration? Where is the line where Congress is giving legislative power to an agency rather than just giving administrative power to the agency? We know that the agencies can fill in the details. How much are details? So that issue has to be resolved by the courts over time. The way they would resolve, uh, well, search and seizure. What is an, an, a lawful or unlawful search and seizure? Um, what, what, is, uh, what is interstate commerce? And how far does it extend? And what, what um, is not interstate commerce? All of those kinds of issues um, can be dealt with over time and people, lawyers principally, then understand where the lines are over time because they read the cases and can get a sense of where the court is. And so in a case where the non-delegation doctrine is up for review um, and, and the jurisprudence requires the court to review a set of facts and determine what is legislation and what is not, that's where the lawyers would come in. And I would sus suspect that Congress then would have a panel of lawyers employed by Congress, or maybe not, um, who would advise them on legislation. And that is whether that legislation is a delegation of authority to the agencies or not based on the jurisprudence of non-delegation that the court would deliver. One final point, and that is, um, What's the politics here? Uh, and how much fortitude do the courts actually need um, in order to address this problem? Um, uh, there was a, uh, an article in the New York Times uh, about a week ago, maybe a little more than a week ago, by a law professor from Chicago Law School named Eric Posner. And he wrote this, um, the real question, and he's talking now about what the conservative court may do. He's saying the real question is whether the Supreme Court will undermine the system of government that has protected the public from abusive business practices since the New Deal. So what, what we know about the left now is that this is exactly where they will fight. The, the whatever reforms this this group of five conservatives on the court may propose, and that is you are exposing the American people to abuses of all kinds and all the protections that they have been granted over the years by decisions of these administrative agencies are now going to be thrown out. So what I'm saying here is that it's necessary for conservatives to adopt an attitude that becomes well-known in the press, among the public, about how important it is that the courts, that the administrative agencies be reined in. It's a question of democracy. And it's on that basis that I think we should be fighting it. I, not on non-delegation, not on, even on Chevron, but on whether allowing these agencies to make these decisions for the American people based on very general statutory language um, is democracy or it isn't. And uh, I think if, if we fight it on that basis, I think 
we can win this argument. But if we don't, I think the people like Eric Posner and the left and the media uh, will make things so, the blowback on the court will be so significant when they start addressing the Chevron case that they won't go on to address uh, the even more important question of what exactly is the delegation of legislative authority to the administrative branch. So thank you very much. No, 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 please feel free. Uh, we're going to now turn to the question uh, portion here. Uh, but before I give the audience a chance, and I'll give you all plenty of chance to talk, I just have one question uh, myself I just wanted to pose with you. Uh, you said if you looked at the campaign videos of the last few weeks and then in 2016, you saw that a, a lot of average people were very upset with overregulation. My guess is the average person, however, at the same time wants uh, food that is unadulterated and drugs that are safe and effective. So how do we engage in this sort of balance? Uh, do we still let agencies like the Food and Drug Administration make those decisions, or do those also have to be made by Congress? Um, this, of course, gets right exactly to the question I was talking about, which is, what is the difference between legislation and administration? I don't have an answer to that, but I think the courts can develop, the Supreme Court particularly, can develop that answer over a period of time through what I call the jurisprudence of non-delegation. Because it account, what, it, what it means is that they have to uh, demonstrate that something that Congress does actually makes a major decision that should have been made by Congress and hands it to an administrative agency. If, the, if those decisions are made sufficiently over a period of time, so that someone can make a judgment about what the courts are worried about here, um, then I think we start to get an answer to that question. Um, but it's very um, fact-specific, because in each case, it's going to be somewhat different. And in, and, but eventually, something comes out of that, like um, uh, it happens in, in what we were talking about before, and that is what is interstate commerce, or what is search and seizure, what is unlawful search and seizure, those things, and what may come out in the, in the Gundy case um, as the beginning is, is really what works. Now, I have to say that this has been dealt with by, the chief, by chief Justice Marshall, as early as 2023, and he didn't, I mean, I'm sorry, 1823, he did not solve this problem for us. But he went a, a, a little distance down the road because he was confronted with a question, well, here's something that Congress authorized, in this case it was the judiciary, to do. Um, and uh, the, the complaint from someone who was bothered by that was, well, this is a delegation of legislative authority because Congress could have done it. And Marshall, who was eminently practical, said, wait, the important things have to be done by Congress. The unimportant things, the details, are, even though Congress has the authority to do it, 
can be handed over to an administrative agency. That was 200 years ago. And things, I will tell you, things have not advanced since then. And that was a circular idea then. But as I said at the very beginning, we can't escape this. Because if we don't have a way of judging what it can be given to the agencies by Congress, Congress will give unlimited amounts of this power to the agencies, and soon we will be governed by the agencies and their priorities, and not by what the American people want. Okay, we now the opportunity for questions from the audience. Uh, please let me just say first, wait till the microphone is handed to you. Identify who you are and ask a question. And giving a speech and at the end saying, do you agree or disagree, <laughs> is not a question. Okay? So, uh, with that in mind, this fellow here in the, in the back there, he was first. Uh, uh, thank you. I'm Bob Carlstrom. Uh, and Peter, question for you. It's on a different subject than yesterday's discussion. Um, the Congressional Review Act, I think, is, is an excellent tool by which to impose certain checks on it. But the dilemma... As you clearly is, is when you get into the arcane questions, having fought EPA for many years on different things, they adopt as a policy matter things like the precautionary principle, which allows them to go beyond what is necessary to protect, you know, create a margin of safety. Any thoughts, you know, in terms of uh, of of where where an agency adopts, let's say, an overarching principle of conduct that enables them to exceed perhaps what the intent of the Congress might be? Um, it's, it's, of course, very hard to uh, pinpoint anything based on what we're talking about here. The Congressional Review Act is valuable, as a matter of fact, but only under very, very narrow circumstances because you have to have both houses of Congress and the president um, of the same party, and it has to be only 60 legislative days since the regulation has been put out. So that hasn't worked very well. It worked at the beginning of the Trump administration, but that was very rare. Before that, only one other case had occurred um, where it's been used. The RAINS Act is the same. Congress can't go back and start looking at these regulations. These regulations are hundreds of pages long, and Congress can't decide that this, this one is good and this one is bad. And there's another thing that is true, true here, and that is that once a regulation or a policy of any kind comes out, it develops a lot of defenders, and it becomes extremely difficult to reverse it. Um, take the ACA, for example. I mean, lots of Republicans, governors and so forth, didn't like the fact that um, the Obamacare would be overturned because they were already uh, – they got some advantages out of it, and the people in their states got some advantages out of it as they saw it. So I think we have to leave Congress out of this. The question really is um, simply what the courts can do, because they are independent, and they can make these kinds of very difficult decisions about whether the agency, as a precautionary effort, went well beyond what would have been reasonable for Congress when it set the standards, but Congress has to set some standards. Um, in Wayman, Wayman versus Southard, which is the case I mentioned for Chief Justice Marshall, he said 
well, the important things have to be made by con- important decisions have to be made by Congress, and the unimportant ones by the administrative agency, but within the territory marked out by Congress. That's really an important statement because Congress really has to set some some uh, boundaries. And if it does that, I think the courts would then um, find that fine. And so if you get to something like um, precautionary um, activity, if the courts look at that and say, well, this is, this is a reasonable position, uh, but co- what Congress said here is no more than this or less than that, which is the way you'd think that legislation should go, um, then precautionary activities that come up to the limit would be fine, I think. Sir, down here in the second row. Hi, my name is Devin Watkins from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, We had filed a brief in Gundy, and I wanted to ask you about drawing that line. Uh, We had argued that there's a difference between delegating questions of fact to agencies or mixed questions of fact, how to apply those facts, and pure questions of law, where those pure questions of law have to be decided by Congress. Does that sound like a reasonable distinction to be drawn in for non-delegation reasons? Um, I I think not necessarily, but it it is a useful distinction. I guess my view would be that a question of fact can become a question of law. Um, And so the issue really is whether Congress set enough of a standard so that um, the court finds that Congress has not gone beyond, uh, that that Congress has not gone beyond what the Constitution allows for the delegation of, of authority. I don't think that the fact and law distinction works perfectly it's helpful, but it's a much more complicated issue than that, I think. So that would be my view of it. In the back there, Diane. Diane Katz with Heritage. From a, from a separation of powers standpoint, do you think that Congress could set a standard of review for the courts that simply says – agencies cannot be given deference as a standard of review? Yes. I think Congress has plenary power to do anything it wants. Whether Congress would do such a thing is my question, and uh, I, don't think, I don't think they will. Uh, politically, it's just too difficult. You, you heard what I read from, from uh, Posner's s- statement. And you can imagine the enormous outcry um, that would come from uh, the the left and many others who would be told all kinds of horror, horror stories about what would happen if uh, the agencies were not able to um, to uh, decide what powers they had gotten from Congress. So I'm skeptical of it, and uh, that's why I want. I think the courts are the ones ultimately that are the only ones who are going to be able to, to do it over time. And, and you have the problem of what is deference in that congressional language. The courts, however, can 
um, more easily deal with that kind of question. I mean, where, what, what authority Congress actually gave to the agency and whether you're deferring to, con to uh, authority that the Congress actually gave or just authority that the agency has arrogated to itself um, because of its interpretation of what Congress might have meant. So that's why I'm, I, I think we need, we need more precision here. We need the kind of legal precision that comes from court decisions dealing with facts in individual cases and done over time. I just think it's absolutely necessary that we get started doing that now. In the back there, Todd? Todd Gaziano from the Pacific Legal Foundation and uh, Peter and I think Paul Larkin know how much I admire your book. I'm going to um, ask you maybe a somewhat difficult historical development. Um, the Supreme Court back in the 19th century and to this day always says how vital the non-delegation rule is that Congress can't delegate its lawmaking power. How essential. I mean, there's a, some wonderful quotes from the majority in dissent in the Marshall Field case from the late. They always requote, but the concern seemed to emerge from the 1940s, maybe, um, and then taken even by our, for, you know, hero Scalia, that there was a concern about enforcing it. But the court has never um, shied away from enforcing the indeterminate Fourth Amendment standard reasonable. They've done the case-by-case -case adjudication method. You talk. And the First Amendment is even a better example. There's no clear, there aren't many clear bright lines, but they don't say Congress can make any law abridging speech as long as it has an intelligible principle, as long as it has an intelligible excuse. It, it, it does the job of, of drawing those hard lines. Why do you think it was that the court in the 20th century um, became either seriously or or consequentially shy and how do we convince them that they they need they can and need to do the same thing that they do in these other areas of constitutional law um, well I think the courts have been afraid of the opposition that would come from their taking a stand on the non-delegation issue. And I think I, in the book, I go back to Schechter and Panama, um, Panama, Refining. Panama Refining. Thank you. That's right. Forgot it for a moment. Um, there the, the Supreme Court said this, these were delegations of authority. These were uh, delegations of legislative authority. Very controversial statement. Um, the next year, uh, FDR won a massive majority in the election, and he turned around and proposed um, the court packing plan. Now, fortunately, the American people didn't like that, and Congress didn't adopt it, but ever since, the courts have been afraid to um, step into that moving stream. They... That's my, that's my sense of it, and that's why this book is called Judicial Fortitude. I mean, I think they have to, they have to steady themselves to the duty that they um, are, were expected by the framers to perform. And if they, if they don't do that, we're headed 
toward what I said. I just don't see any any outcome different from that, and that is that the agencies will be making the rules for all of us in the future, and at some point the American people will say, this is no longer a democracy, and we'll have all kinds of problems coming out of that. So I don't know whether that answers your question, but um, I just don't see how uh, we can we can do it any other way at this point. It seems to me the courts are the only ones who are able to make the kinds of distinctions that are necessary here. Down here in the front. Emmett McGrory, American Principles Project. Uh, you, you raise, a, I think, a, a fascinating uh, issue, and, and that, that's conservatives, traditionalists tend to, to look at the court and think, uh, there's no need to, to create the conditions in public discourse for judicial fortitude. They're going to sit down and look at the cases and, and apply the law to the facts. Um, but, but in fact, is, is, is this something that uh, conservatives and traditionalists kind of abdicate, this, this idea of, of being uh, very assertive in public discourse as to what the court needs to do and should do. Are we lacking in that regard? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think we are, in, in some sense, um, concerned about the, the problem of act, uh, judicial activism, which we have all been schooled in for a long time by Scalia and others, that is not permissible. We are... The courts are not supposed to get into policy issues. But as I said before, I do think there's an important distinction here. I think it's the very opposite when we talk about the structure of the Constitution. Um, that is something, and I take it from this uh, Federalist 78, that is something the framers expected the courts to do. And so I, I think we ought to be pushing the courts to observe this uh, duty and go ahead and perform it because if it doesn't happen, um, well, the, some very bad results can occur over time if we look at the trends that we're seeing today. Um, and and uh, there are, there are this, this business of an intelligible principle, which, which you mentioned just a little while ago, I, I think that is... Um, a way for the courts to avoid the decision. They say, oh, well, uh, we're looking at this, and given everything that's, that's involved here, there was an intelligible principle set out by Congress for the, for the agency. I think that's, that's silly. I mean, it is, it's not real. And no one can tell you what an intelligible principle really is. So I think we need more intellectual work by the people who are on the Supreme Court, and the five we have there now, and incidentally, this book is dedicated to Clarence Thomas, who is the only one who, since he's been on the court, has consistently said that we have to do something about the delegation of legislative authority. And I'd be happy to take it on if any of you other guys want to do it, and no one has taken him up on this. But I think now the five people who are on the court are already. Let me ask you a, a question. Um, you mentioned the Gundy case, which is a criminal case. Uh, are there special concerns involved in allowing uh, people in agencies, bureaucrats as the term is normally used, 
to define crimes or to define elements in statutes uh, that have criminal consequences. I mean, for example, in the case of the environmental laws, uh, it's up to the Environmental Protection Agency to define what is a waste and what waste or hazardous waste and what. Does that create special problems from a government, uh, excuse me, a governance perspective uh, in terms of allowing uh, agencies to make these judgments rather than forcing Congress to do so? Yeah, uh, especially in criminal cases. I think there's a special standard there. And in fact, in the Gundy case, it was really quite interesting because Breyer kept pointing to the fact that this was a criminal case. And um, so he w what I think he was saying, I don't know, I can't, I'm not a Supreme Court specialist, but I, what I think he was saying is, I've heard all you guys when we talked about this case and you said you're worried about the non-delegation problem, but I'd like to, and I agree, you've, you've cited something here, putting Mr. Gundy, who, who was uh, convicted of, a, of a, a sex crime before the statute was adopted by Congress. And at the time, Congress then said, well, for those people who have already been convicted of a sex crime, the attorney general can decide whether to put you under that rule or not. And, and it required you to be identified, as I recall, um, as someone who'd committed a sex crime. Um, and so I think Breyer was trying to say, okay, if you want to go as far as to set out the non, a non-delegation doctrine issue right now and decide it that way, let's limit it to criminal cases because criminal cases are special cases where the government's power um, is especially dangerous because you can lose your liberty um, and, and be put into jail and so forth. Uh, so um, I, I would say that uh, if they start the Gundy case, if they start out along a jurisprudential path of non-delegation with a criminal case like Gundy, and that would give courts in the future the opportunity to distinguish the Gundy case in non-criminal cases, but at least it would get us started down the path of creating a jurisdiction, uh, a, a jurisprudence of non-delegation, which we don't have now. We have nothing that resembles that today. It's useless. So that's, that's how I see it. Criminal cases are really important uh, to be very clear about and for the agencies to make something a crime um, or have the power to make something a crime would be one of those very difficult kinds of decisions that would, if we had a, juris, if we had a jurisprudence of um, non-delegation, it would start with the powers of agencies to make things into crimes. You, you have a chapter in your book where you're talking about the progressive movement early in, uh, late in the 19th century, early in the 20th. Did the progressive movement go so far as to say that agencies should be able to define crimes or define terms that uh, are used in criminal statutes? It's really interesting if you read the, the material that was written during that time and right into the New Deal, um, which really picked up the ideas from the progressive era. Um, they thought, actually, that the agencies would run the, the businesses that they were regulating, that they would make the major decisions for the businesses that they were intended to regulate. 
It turned out, of course, and as the New Deal worked on, went on and people watched how the agencies were behaving, they found out that the agencies were completely unable to do something like that and had become actually partners of the um, industries that they were supposed to be regulating. Um, so the, the, the important thing that came out of what was done in the progressive era was this was this sense that technically proficient, credentialed, smart, disinterested people are the ones who ought to be making these decisions. And that's why the agencies were created during the New Deal period and why I think the sa that same idea which was solidified into the law by the people who um, FDR appointed when he finally had the opportunity to pack the court because there were a lot of resignations after 1937 and, and between 1937 and 1941 FDR appointed all the members of the court um, and they then adopted the same general idea and that is uh, a loose attitude toward what agencies should be able to do and that just continued in, in the law until we got to Chevron <coughs> which was the, uh, in my view, the apotheosis of exactly that notion. Another question down front. So I want to talk about this criminal civil distinction for a moment. Um, uh, Gorsuch, when he was on the Tenth Circuit, had actually mentioned this distinction as well. And I agree with you from oral arguments, that seems to be where the court's going. But as far as I know, like all of the previous non-delegation cases we've had have all been civil cases. None of them have been criminal. Um, does that mean, does that suggest that we should be careful about eliminating at least the civil aspects of non-delegation doctrine? Uh, no, I just think that's the way the cases have come up to the court. I think it's just been very rare for someone to raise. I, th I think, I don't know for sure, but I think it's just very rare. There are many, many more civil cases than criminal cases. So I think civil cases have come up to the court more often than criminal cases with non-delegation issues in them. And the court has simply sidestepped it by saying, um, uh, deciding on, another, on other grounds or saying that there was an intelligible principle there somewhere, and so we don't really have to um, address this question of, of um, delegation, or we have addressed it by saying there was an, an, an intelligible principle. Um, so I don't think that's correct, and I do think that if we are going to get anywhere in this area, we have to have civil as well as criminal cases covered by a non-delegation doctrine because what basically the agencies are doing, most of them are doing things that are not criminal. They are doing civil things and they are controlling the way people um, uh, use their property and, and do whatever the ever else they are doing um, on a civil basis, not on a criminal basis. But the criminal law is the one that really um, is, is probably the one that would draw the most attention and appreciation by people and because people understand that losing your reputation or losing your liberty because of a criminal decision that was actually made by an agency and not by a Congress is uh, probably a more attractive way to proceed and that's why the Gundy case is a good way to start. 
You have a question? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so my name is William Thompson. I'm an intern here, as evidenced by the fact that I'm running the mic. Um, so on the civil side of the non-delegation doctrine, um, do you think the case that's that's pending in the International Trade Court, um, AIIS, that, that deals with the constitutionality of Section 232 and delegating the tariff power to the president, do you think that has a chance of um, you know getting a civil side of jurisprudence when it comes to non-delegation? Do you think it has a chance to get to the Supreme Court? Is there a uh, has a claim been made about delegation? On uh, that? It, the case is is uh, went before a three judge panel um, at the ITC because they claim that Section two thirty two of the Trade Act is unconstitutional because it's a delegation because it delegates the power to the president. Um, yeah, well, I I don't see any any reason why it wouldn't except for the fact that the president has general plenary authority over international relations. And someone might distinguish the case on that basis that, uh, well, yes, okay, but how far are we, we here in Congress actually going to go to set the rules for how the president deals with other nations on, on a trade basis? A lot of the early cases on trade, and I think there's one right now, and maybe that's the one you're talking about, a lot of the early cases were, in fact, where the delegation issue came up and all kinds of ideas came out of the courts about why this was not really a delegation of legislative authority. And I think one of the reasons is they feel uncomfortable addressing things that have an international aspect to them when the president obviously under the Constitution has some special powers um, in dealing with um, international relations in other countries. Well, with that, we uh, draw to a close our event for today. Please join me in thanking Mr. Wallison for his presentation and for his book.